0: Alex, still Welcome
1: to the Scott and Manos podcast. This is our 19th episode. We're here late in November. It's the 79th birthday of our president, Joe Biden. <laughs> As it happens. Um, but right now we set the scene. Uh, Rhea is in the midst of her uh, play, still magnolias, and. Um, our friend Alan Richard is coming to the end of his lovely stay here with us and doing uh, archival work for Minas. So Minas, talk about um, the scope of the project that you guys have been working on.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Hi. Um, So I asked Alan to come here, and he's been here for about six to seven weeks working on uh, putting papers together in our archive for digitization and um, we have created certain categories um, that will be digitized and be open to the world wide web and um, what we've been doing is tagging certain documents so World Jewish Congress, Herman Searing, ADL, Nazi hunting Um, all kinds of different kind of subsets of the project. And Alan has been doing an amazing job of kind of tagging everything, putting all the files in the right places, the things that we want to digitize and taking out things that we don't need digitization for because they're either copies or available elsewhere.
1: Well, I've been here sort of um, listening as an ancillary ear to – What's been discovered in all this research, and I've been arguing with Alan about him being now a, close to a world uh, authority on at least Hermann Zering, if not the entire Nazi hunting phenomena. But I want to ask Alan.
0: Definitely Hermann Zering. Yeah, definitely
1: Hermann Zering. Well, I mean, how many Nazi hunters are there really? I mean, I want to ask Alan now, <coughs> like, um, what are some ma- major takeaways, some of the things you were surprised about in terms of a regular man turned Nazi hunter?
2: Well, I think the thing that most surprised me, uh, Hermann Ziering and, um, and also Leah Ziering were both survivors of the Holocaust. Um, Hermann was a survivor of the Riga Ghetto and Kaiserwald uh, Camp. Um, later Liebau. Um, he was at a prison in Hamburg. He was on a death march and ended up in uh, uh, Kila Hasa right before they were rescued by the Swedish um, Red Cross. But in 1970, he and Lori Oppenheimer founded the uh, Survivors, uh, the Society of the Survivors of the Riga Ghetto. And they had two tasks that they set before themselves at that point, and one was to create a historical record of the Riga ghetto and what went on, and the other one was to, quote, gather evidence, unquote. At this point, the New York Times had already exposed the presence of a former concentration camp guard living as a quiet housewife in Queens. Mm-hmm. And there was evidence pointing to um, someone who was involved in the deaths at the Riga Ghetto, who was living in Long Island, a guy named Boleslavs Majkowskis. So in 1970, um, Herman and Laurie Oppenheimer started this, this organization that was partly… And how are
1: they connected?
2: They were both survivors of the Riga Ghetto. Mm-hmm. And, and it was initially really about creating a record and, and evidence. They began um, agitating for the deportation, the, the identification and deportation of former Nazi r- war criminals living in the United States before um, really anybody but The Times had gotten a hold of it at all and before the Times had gotten a hold of most of it. Mm -hmm. I think what this record of documents shows, now that it's been organized, is that Herman Ziering, Laurie Oppenheimer, and the Society for the Survivors of the Riga Ghetto um, catalyzed a process that ultimately ended up um, in the ADL's War Crimes Task Force, and the Office of Special Investigations of the Justice Department. They're really the premier Nazi hunting uh, entities in the United States that actually managed to do things that identified these people and deported them.
0: But also the INS,
2: right? Yeah, the Office of Special Investigations started as uh, the centralization of Nazi war crimes efforts within the INS, which had up to that point been disorganized and, and... Perhaps even subverted within the INS.
1: Well, let me ask I Minot's mean, question. So, you know, the the mission of this, uh, you know, ultimately digit, you know, organization, digitization of this kind of uh, work, this kind of data, this kind of evidence, is going to be something that hopefully future scholars will come and and discover for themselves. What what do you think? Future scholars will be looking for In this regard
0: Well I mean I think You know the Archive gives a history of People who Had survived um, And came out and actually Wanted to seek justice that's really The overarching Kind of thesis If one may put down a thesis But I mean I think the second Thing is also about how Scholars would be interested in someone like Carmen Ziering um, and the Riga Ghetto. Um, I mean, you have to understand; these are survivors from the Riga Ghetto. They were imprisoned. They went to concentration camps, um, and a and a few of them, a handful of them, came out to seek justice after they, what they had gone through, and basically traveled to many countries to find um, Nazis that were living because they wanted to show the world how, you know, a lot of people got away, and people got away because we let them as the United States and Canada uh, get away, and Simon Wiesenthal would talk more so about Canada but here we have a local story in the Bronx, and we have a story about a man who was you know, willfully seeking Nazis but also trying to show the world that you cannot get away with crimes, and I think it's relevant for scholars and students because this is happening a lot in our country today, and it's happening on a scale um, through justice and you know as you know that you know um, why the Holocaust was so unique was because it was state sanctioned now w- I'm not making a parallel between the Holocaust and what's going on in the United States with black Americans or um gender orientation or muslims or jews but what i'm trying to say is that once you see the state kind of sanction under the the guise of justice any kind of injustice towards people who are minorities it becomes a problem and i think contemporary people would be really interested in this because we can learn about how these people try to um get these people to to i mean protest we talk about today Herman Ziering had protests and demonstrations that were peaceful, but outside the homes of Nazis, and we can do the same thing outside the homes of supreme justice lawyers um, judges What's stopping us?
1: Well as we know uh, maybe from the past uh, podcast, all of this research famously came from boxes (coughs) In a garage and God knows how many more boxes are like that around America But Alan I want to ask you this question. So People uh, of a certain age typically don't know much about their own parents, their own fathers or mothers, because they don't ask questions. What do you think um, was most surprising about uh, Herman's history that maybe their own his own kids wouldn't even know any- anything about?
2: Well. I think Herman's uh, involvement in wanting to be aware of what was happening globally. Um, And you can see this in his travel itinerary. You can see it in his work on cases like the Filartiga v. Peña case, which involved a government official in Paraguay murdering the teenage son of a um, political opposition mm. person and, <clears throat> and escaping to the United States and then Herman being involved in rooting him out, identifying him, having him deported for trial, all of that stuff. <clears throat> he was not literally a Nazi, <clears throat> but it was the same principle. Um, impunity breeds imitation so if the Nazis do this and get away with it and their imitators even learn from their mistakes so the degree to which they succeed is the degree to which they'll be imitated Mm -hmm. so it's not about vengeance so much as it really is about justice which is about the future what happens now
1: well and I was going to ask you you know you're still traveling around and around the country around the world and people are asking you to speak about uh, your work and you know specifically show on muslim eyes with, from muslim eyes and uh but I want to ask you how this project that's been going on intensely for the last month but more or less for the last eight months, almost a year, has informed your discussions in synagogues and uh, different places around the country.
0: Well, I mean, my work has to do with justice too, and it's about <coughs> culpability, right? I mean, it's about saying that in the Muslim world, there's anti-Semitism, and it's a problem. And I want to call it out, just like Herman Ziering wanted to call out Nazis. I mean, we don't have tons of Nazis in the Muslim world, but we have people who are highly anti-Semitic, and Holocaust distortion is huge. Okay. And so I think there's a lot of parallels in terms of that. And also, I think I, I think for me, I started with the Herman Zering Project because I wanted to break the stereotype of what, what and who survivors were. And the stereotype we have in the United States is that they just went to their death like sheep. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to nuance that, and I wanted to make people understand um, through my own classes, but also through my own work and the Herman Ziering archive, is that that's not necessarily true. And how many kind of tropes we have about Jews. And again, you know, even when we come to the Holocaust, we have that trope of, oh, they just went to their death like sheep. People don't talk about partisans, they don't talk about the resistance, they don't talk about Nazi hunters, they don't talk about justice seekers, they just really talk about the kind of tragedy and the the kind of awful horrible murder um, that took place in the camps.
1: I want to ask Alan this question so you never know who's gonna listen to this podcast you know could be academics could be anybody but from your perspective um, what's the, the value of a of kind of a, an archive like this to an academic institution, say, anywhere in the country, who's maybe listening to this, considering it for their future?
2: Well, the value of—I <coughs> excuse me, think—the value of examining uh, the past in terms of people who have who have sought justice, mm-hmm. like Herman Searing is to learn from both their successes and their failures. Um, It's about, (coughs) excuse me, it's about uh, um, if we're archiving, it's about that. It's about how does this relate to what we have to face now and to what we have to respond to now. I think and I think I think there have been successes in the past and I think some of what Herman did was successful and even where it wasn't he advanced he advanced the strategy from where it was before he was involved in it Um. And you could argue that the OSI has been immensely successful, at least in identifying and deporting. Can you, you explain
1: OSI for people who yeah, don't know? Yeah, the Office
2: of Special Investigations at the Justice Department, who um, it's their responsibility to identify and d- deport um, war criminals, mm-hmm. um, people who've committed crimes against human nature, uh, people who, are, who have committed genocide, who have contributed to committing genocide. It was started to specifically find people who were involved in Nazi crimes. Um, and, and the process I think that Herman and Laurie started in 1970 culminated really in that. Um, and Herman Zering himself was uh, involved actively in investigations, in not just the United States but South America as well um, and possibly around the world that had to do with attempted genocide or genocide and finding ways to bring the perpetrators to justice. Again, not out of revenge. But because impunity breeds imitation. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you: If
1: you, if Herman was here, based on all the things you've you've learned in the past couple of weeks, what would you want to ask him? (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of it's it's been intriguing because there's a lot of interesting intrigue and secrets. And
2: what were you doing? And, no. and the late 1950s and 1960s. Mm-hmm. I would want to ask him that because there's not much of a record of that. And what was the purpose of your flying to all these specific places that we know you were flying to because of your passport. the record you left along, the passport, during the 1970s, where there's also not a lot in terms of a record of what you were doing. But when a lot of the movement from Nazi hunting as some kind of idea of a fringe activity, that, oh, well, yeah, we did find a former concentration camp guard in Queens, but it's an exception, there's not a lot of them here, to there are enough of them here that we need an office of special investigations at the Justice Department to mm-hmm. identify and deport them. What? what happened during that period, beyond what we already know in the early seventies? What were you doing during that period? And when, and Herman, in this period, this is an intense travel period for him. Mm-hmm. What's going on in this period, and how does it relate to what happens later? his life in the 80s when he's heavily involved in the ADL he's heavily involved in um, following these these well reapprehending my when he shows up in Germany monitoring that trial all those sorts of things yeah Uh, yeah, trying to verify the death of Mengele
1: (laughs) yeah well I'm gonna give uh, a last word on this but you know I want to talk about uh, you know, from my little part, I've been transcribing um, cassette tapes into digital, and basically they've been interviews from the 80s. And <clears throat> my interpretation is that uh, he talks about a very, you know, normal life in Castle Hills, et cetera, and and how incrementally that life becomes harder and harder and harder because of Nazis. But again, this is a common story. I mean, this has happened to almost every member of the jury. So the question to you Mna, is that what, what separates a survivor from a Nazi hunter in your mind?
0: Um. Well, I mean, survivors are Nazi hunters, but I think what makes Herman so unique is that, I mean, he did live his life, and he brought up three wonderful children, and he had his own business, et cetera, et cetera, married a wonderful woman. Um, But I think his kind of tenacity um, and his energy about this should not happen again, never again. It's, 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 it's sort of like the motto, I think, in his mind. But he's also about never give up, right? You never give up, and that's why he survived. You know, I mean, This is one of the reasons he survived. But he wasn't going to give up even after he survived, and I think that is the tenacity that I'm talking about and the energy that he put into his life. While having a family, while having a business, he was still... Out there seeking justice, and that's what makes him different. Different as a survivor doesn't mean he's less, better, but different.
2: Well,
1: Thank you. It was an interesting conversation. So it was a little bit of a time since we last had our uh, podcast. We were in Serbia last time, and now we're back here in New York, close to Thanksgiving, twenty twenty one. I think uh, the next time we talk, it will probably be in Venice, Italy, hopefully. And um, Alan's leaving tomorrow. We're going to miss you. But we'll see you probably again in close to the summer.